This is World Lutheran News Digest, an audio news magazine bringing you a look at significant events in worldwide Lutheranism. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO, a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Today on World Lutheran News Digest... I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. The President's given his State of the Union Address. What did it say? And what didn't it say? What did it actually mean for Americans? Tim Gigline, Vice President of Focus on the Family, is a longtime observer of Washington politics. He shares his thoughts with me as my guest on today's World Lutheran News Digest. And now today's Fast Track. For the fourth time in four legislative days, House Democrats blocked a request by Republicans to vote on a bill that would stop infanticide. This is the fifth time congressional Democrats thwarted an attempt by Republicans to vote on a bill that would provide medical care and treatment for babies who survive failed abortions, four times in the House and once in the Senate. Pro-abortion Senator Patty Murray blocked a vote on a bill from pro-life Republican Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska that would have stopped infanticide nationwide. Then, Democrats blocked Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's unanimous consent request to vote on the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. After that, House Minority Whip Steve Scalise asked Democrats to allow a vote on what should be a non-controversial bill. They refused. A California judge refused to allow the names of 14 Planned Parenthood and other abortion workers to be released in the case of David Daleiden and Sandra Merritt. The Center for Medical Progress leaders face 15 felony charges for their undercover investigation that exposed Planned Parenthood's baby body parts trade. An attorney for Daleiden responded to the decision Monday by accusing prosecutors of a political vendetta. On Monday, at state prosecutor's request, San Francisco Judge Christopher Height ruled that the names of 14 abortion workers filmed by Daleiden and Merritt must remain redacted in court filings, according to the report. California Deputy Attorney General Jeanette Jorn claimed that the reductions are necessary because the worker's safety could be in jeopardy. A California federal district court has ordered the state of California to pay Liberty Council nearly $400,000 for attorneys' fees and costs regarding the victory in Mountain Right to Life versus Piquero, which now prohibits the state from enforcing the California Reproductive Fact Act. That's a law which compelled pro-life crisis pregnancy centers to promote abortion. After the Supreme Court ruled in National Institute of Family and Life Advocates versus Piquero that crisis pregnancy centers cannot be forced to promote abortion, the state agreed that the law was unconstitutional and a permanent injunction was entered blocking the law. Now California is required to pay nearly $400,000 to Liberty Council in attorneys' fees and costs. Tennessee lawmakers are considering a bill that could be used to prosecute women for assault, yet they use illegal narcotics while pregnant and give birth to babies that are either drug-dependent or were otherwise harmed by the drugs. A similar law passed in 2014, but has since expired. The updated version, known as House Bill 1168, was filed last week. If passed, the law would take effect on July the 1st. World Lutheran News Digest will be back right after these messages. Hi, I'm Pastor Ted Lesh, pastor at Chapel of the Cross Lutheran Church in North St. Louis County, inviting you to listen to our KFUO radio worship broadcasts on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. Active worship, preaching, music, and singing are part of every one of our services at Chapel. 
Join us Sunday nights at 6. It's one more broadcast worship opportunity for you from your friends at Chapel of the Cross and KFUO Radio. Listening to Worldwide KFUO on the go with your smartphone doesn't mean you have to walk around with earbuds all day. You can Bluetooth across the room to a speaker system in your home or listen on radios that have built-in smartphone cradles. There are many easy ways to listen to WorldwideKFUO.org on the air, online, and on demand. We proclaim the clear gospel message of Christ crucified for our sins. The messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO. Hi, I'm Pastor Matt Youngblood-Clark from Ascension Lutheran in St. Louis. And I am Pastor Jolly John Lekomsky from St. Paul's in New Athens and Trinity in Darmstadt, and we welcome you to listen to Wrestling with the Basics. Matt, 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 let go of me, man. No, no, it's not real wrestling. We're just talking about Bible issues. No. Oh, 9.05 Saturday mornings, 8.50 a.m. KFUO. This is World Lutheran News Digest. This is Lutheran News Digest. I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. My guest today is Mr. Tim Gigline, a longtime Washington observer and friend of the LCMS and of this program. Recently, we heard the State of the Union address given by President Donald Trump. A lot of things were said, a lot of things were left unsaid. Tim, as a Washington observer, has some thoughts on it. Tim, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's great to be back with you. Well, Tim, what did you think of it? It uh, seemed to me to be a little bit different from the more classical Donald Trump. I, I saw some, on one hand, I saw some notes of conciliation. On the other, he seemed to have drawn a really hard line in certain areas. Well, first, overall, I felt it was a very strong speech. Uh, I believe that the that the architecture of that speech... Uh, to your point, was fundamentally different uh, than many of the other uh, speeches we have seen. And one of the things that uh, struck me immediately was the fact that we had come through a shutdown. We had, uh, were in the midst of a major debate over wall funding. And, of course, overlaid with all of that were the major disagreements between the two major political parties uh, regarding partial birth uh, or late-term abortion. Uh, and the president's willingness to really step up, stand out on that issue. But overall, I thought that the architecture of the speech was actually Reagan-esque. It was a speech that was intended uh, to look for points of unity. It was a, a speech that was clearly meant to be conciliatory at certain turns in a house that, uh, you know, had uh, changed leadership from the speakership of Paul Ryan and the Republicans to the speakership of uh, the Democrats and, uh, and Speaker Nancy Pelosi. But I also felt particularly that in the biggest uh, and most contentious issue that the president was eager to lay out why he felt that we needed a wall. Uh, I, I don't think that I have seen any other speech uh, that he has done any uh, bit of, uh, you know, press availabilities or rallies where with that kind of granularity, he actually, uh, you know, made that case. Whether you're for it or against it, it was not, uh, you know, typical uh, rhetoric that we have seen from this president. He, uh, I think, particularly was 
working to set out what he felt that the parameters were. One thing I saw right at the beginning that I thought was an unspoken message. Traditionally, the president is introduced by the Speaker of the House, and uh, the president bypassed that. Yeah, you know, Donald Trump uh, revels, uh, and in one sense, Speaker Pelosi does as well, in kind of breaking uh, protocol. You know, they, they look for points in the political class of, uh, of structure, and, and they say, and they have both of these uh, uh, people over time, uh, Speaker Pelosi and the Democratic Party, uh, Donald Trump in both the, de- the, Repu- the Democrat Party, where he spent much of his life, and in the Republican Party, uh, have looked for places in, uh, you know, to say, oh, well, that may have worked in other times, but it's not going to work this time. And I think clearly the personal uh, disagreements, which are very deep uh, between uh, the Speaker and the President, frankly, as big as any, between any president and any speaker of the contemporary era of American politics really stood out to me. It did to me as well. There were a couple of areas where I I really thought that the president was changing his thrust. One of the things he did, for example, was his featuring of African-Americans who had been benefited by his programs. For example, the uh, Second Chance program or the uh, the, that he had granted clemency to that one African-American woman in prison. Of course, there is the unemployment picture where it is record low for African-Americans, record low for uh, Hispanics and Latinos. He's really appealing to a a group that has traditionally been the base of the Democrats. Yeah, you know, uh, it's not related directly to the State of the Union, but I'm eager to gloss something you referenced. You know, Richard Nixon, you have to go back to the uh, late 1960s and early 1970s. Unlike many other contemporary Republican presidents, achieved a very substantial kind of percentage of African-American votes. And uh, George W. Bush, first as governor of Texas, and then in his first election, uh, you know, as president. Like Nixon with African-Americans, George W. Bush attracted a large percentage, relatively speaking, of Hispanic Americans. What I have been very intrigued by of all the data sets of 2016 uh, and of 2018, but particularly the Florida governor's race, uh, Ron DeSantis, who came out of the Freedom Caucus, uh, the most conservative of all of the Republicans as a former House member, running for the governorship of Florida, achieved a very large percentage not only of Hispanic or Cuban-American votes, but also of African-American votes. Why do I say all this? I believe that Donald Trump, in that State of the Union message, was testing themes for his re-election. And while we call it the State of the Union message, I believe it was the first speech of his uh, 2020 re-election campaign. It was a unifying, as I said a moment ago, it was Reagan-esque, But as you pointed out, and with the benchmarks of George W. Bush, Richard Nixon, and Governor DeSantis of Florida, I believe that Donald Trump is going to make a major play in 2020 for Hispanic and African-American votes. And I'll tell you, based on the strength of the economy and other issues, uh, I think it is quite possible that Donald Trump 
will increase the percentage of those votes anywhere between 2 and 4%. In the world of American politics, as you know, that is a gigantic increase. I think another area where he's trying to nibble away at the Democrats' base are with Jewish voters, where he, he stressed the, uh, we have uh, moved our embassy from uh, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. We have recognized uh, Jerusalem's authority over that. Uh, he has uh, repeatedly supported the state of Israel, much more so than the Democrats have. Also, the fact that the Democrats have elected to the House of Representatives several blatant anti-Semites. I totally agree with you. And in fact, you'll forgive me, in the uh, groups that I was laying out a moment ago, you are absolutely right. You know, Jewish Americans, since the era of Franklin Roosevelt, have clearly made the Democratic Party their party home. You know, I mean, the largest percentage of Jewish Americans uh, vote uh, Democrat uh, in presidential elections. That is undeniably the case. But you are right. Uh, and I think that this is undoubtedly uh, the, uh, uh, a very substantial part of the Trump tense legacy, moving the embassy uh, you know, to Jerusalem, and, and, in a, and, a, and a host of other, uh, to your second question, and a host of other protocol-breaking moves uh, where presidents of both parties had always said that the embassy should be moved to Jerusalem, but never did so. Donald Trump achieved that. And with the election of the new far-left, uh, sizable majorities uh, in the House of Representatives, I believe that this is giving historic members of the Democratic base, African Americans, Hispanic Americans, uh, Jewish Americans, they, in these decisions and rhetoric, uh, both policy and, uh, and words, are giving uh, these uh, principal groups you know, within the American electorate an openness, a willingness to consider, at least at the presidential level, you know, uh, pulling that lever for a member of a party that in, in majority numbers they have not done in a very long time. Another aspect where he literally drew a line in the sand, or pardon me, figuratively drew a line in the sand, was on late-term abortion. And he uh, really went after the Democrats on that and uh, was very, very upfront about his support for pro-life physicians. Now, of course, the pro-life camp has always been pro-Republican because the Republicans had that in their plank. But I'm wondering, because the the most recent moves in New York State and the attempted moves in Virginia to radicalize abortion up to and including birth to the point where Kermit Gosnell would not have committed a crime in the state of New York. Is he going after a different audience here? Yeah, may I tell you, uh, urban Catholics, ex-urban Catholics, uh, have taken note. And I don't believe that the president designed his comment about the governor of Virginia and the governor of Virginia's defense of infanticide specifically to appeal to those demographics that historically have not necessarily supported uh, the Republican Party or a Republican president, just as you said. However, the salutary effect is absolutely that, because in the economic questions, you're appealing to African-Americans and Hispanics who otherwise would not give the time of day to a Republican presidential candidate. But because of the very terrific economic job situation 
they are now saying, I'm going to give that a second look. In the way that Jewish Americans have concluded that the extremist rhetoric that arises from some elements uh, of the, uh, the, the new Democratic majority in the House, and frankly, uh, Democrats around the country, uh, I think is, is, is giving uh, uh, you know, Jewish Americans a new look. But I, I really do believe very strongly that, 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 that President Trump, who is uh, overwhelmingly uh, with George W. Bush, the most pro-life uh, president we have ever had since the 1973 uh, Roe decision, I feel very strongly that the percentage of urban and working-class uh, Catholics who have historically been more blue-collar, more ethnic, and more Democrat in their voting patterns, I believe for the first time on that single issue, and because of uh, President uh, Trump's pro-life position, I believe they are categorically and rapidly moving into the, uh, into the Republican column. Or at least might not vote for Democrats and set it out. Indeed. And I, I must say that the other thing that, although you, you, you did not mention it, but I, it's related, which is that only four of the nine Supreme Court justices uh, decided to come to the President's State of the Union message. Chief Justice John Roberts, who, of course, was nominated by George W. Bush, uh, Elena Kagan, nominated by uh, President uh, Barack Obama. But both of the, uh, the President Trump's nominees, Neil Gorsuch of Colorado and uh, Brett Kavanaugh of Maryland, both were there. And uh, interestingly, we now have many pro-life cases arising from appellate and circuit courts around the country, which are very rapidly moving to the Supreme Court. And it's probable that uh, John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the United States, who was there listening to the president, uh, is the new swing vote in those potential uh, Supreme Court pro-life cases that could begin to alter or gut Roe versus Wade. In other words, the three most important votes, along with Clarence Thomas, Justice Thomas, and Justice Samuel Alito, were there listening to the president's comments and the, and the, the, the pro-life parts of that speech, which were very strong. Another aspect that I wanted to uh, sound you out on was the uh, actual movements of the two political parties. Now, President Trump, although uh, as a Republican, has endorsed a number of positions that are not traditionally Republican. For example, tariffs. Uh, that's one thing where the Republicans have traditionally gone for, for free trade as opposed to fair trade. So there has been movement away from the traditional stance on the GOP side. On the other hand, the Democrats have also had almost uh, a sea change within their base and within what they're trying to accomplish. How, we, how do you look at the two parties now? They're certainly not the, the same parties they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. The party of wealth, the party of affluence, and, the, and those uh, who, uh, the party of those educated beyond high school in the contemporary iteration of American partisan politics, has overwhelmingly uh, gone to the Republican Party, up to and including the uh, Mitt uh, Romney and John McCain primaries. And historically, the party that is more blue-collar, educated only to high school and below, more union-oriented, 
West Coastal, more interior, has historically, in the American experience, been more uh, democratic. But as you say, Donald Trump has the idiom and the attraction of a blue-collar billionaire. He knows how to speak to the historic blue-collar constituency. And overwhelmingly, he has remade the parties in presidential election. And I believe that this is why states like Michigan, like Wisconsin, like Ohio, like Indiana, the Ohio River states, the states like West Virginia, these states increasingly are looking toward, on a, at a presidential level, a real Battlestar Galactica, you know, between the two parties. Donald Trump has overwhelmingly made uh, the Republican Party a more working-class, blue-collar party, uh, while the coastal elites and those educated beyond high school are uh, drifting far more rapidly, especially in urban and, uh, and ex-urban demo- demographics toward the Democratic Party. Uh, I find 2020 uh, is going to be one of, from demography, one of the most fascinating political presidential election years we have ever had in the contemporary presidency. Another observation I'd like to make and uh, get your take on it. You know, President Reagan was referred to as the great communicator. He certainly had that background with acting and his early broadcasting career. Trump has been criticized for his utilization of the twit of the tweet of the using Twitter. I have a little different view of that. I think what the guy is doing is he's completely bypassing the gatekeepers of the mainstream media and to a large extent has literally become the assignment editor for media. You know, he sends out a dozen emails before six o'clock in the morning and drives the American media bananas. I have to tell you that what Franklin Roosevelt was to the radio, what John Kennedy was to the contemporary news conference, and what Ronald Reagan was to television, uh, is what Donald Trump is to social media. And in fact, uh, it's counterintuitive, but Donald Trump is a far more effective uh, user of social and new media than uh, President Obama was. And I actually do agree with you. A lot of people, many even who support President Trump, they say something like, I just wish he would lay off the tweets. Well, in fact, it is the tweets which have given him such uh, remarkable, uh, the remarkable ability to, uh, to set and reset the American news cycle. So whether you go to Iowa or Nebraska or Nantucket or uh, Midtown Manhattan or Los Angeles, or, uh, you know, the Buckhead Diner uh, near Atlanta, wherever you go now. And in many ways, because of tweeting uh, and twittering, uh, Donald Trump uh, is the toast of the town. And he is absolutely dominating our news cycles and remaking the American media in ways that would been unimaginable before 2016. And I think one thing that's coming through now, as we as was mentioned, you know, the the theme of his State of the Union speech was unity. But I think he was maybe he was aiming it more toward the American public than he was to the Congress. Because I look at uh, the Democrats have really gone in heavily for identity politics and tribalism. And I think Trump is trying to say, look, we're all American here. 
you're not just a, an African American, you're an American. And I think this is what the message is he's trying to convey. And it may or may not resonate with the American public. But I think this is one of the big differences between the two sides. One side is for inclusion, the other side is for tribalization. Yeah, may I say, this is the part of his State of the Union message, which I found Reagan at. Ronald Reagan, who was called the great communicator, he was asked one time, why is that true? And he said, he said, I don't know that I'm the great communicator, I just have great ideas to convey. But the Ronald Reagan's singular gift as the great communicator was his ability to almost talk over the media. You know, they had always been the filters and the gatekeepers. And because Ronald Reagan had these very, very unique gifts of communication, when he would get in front of a television camera, he just—he seemed to be speaking directly to people who were sitting in their living or family rooms. He just—he just had that ability, and Donald Trump exhibited that ability in the State of the Union message. Speaker Pelosi was behind him. Vice President Pence was behind him. Uh, America's political class was in front of him. But frankly, and I watched this very closely, I've learned that Donald Trump is a president you have to watch. If you just read about him or if you just hear about him secondhand, you're actually missing something, uh, whether you're for him or not. You're missing something uh, very unique in American presidential politics. It's not like Richard Nixon. You know, it's not like Jimmy Carter. Donald Trump idiomatically speaks at a level where uh, someone who has a Ph.D. in astrophysics uh, or somebody, you know, who hasn't graduated beyond the eighth grade, he has the ability to speak over the media, using the media, but finds a way to speak directly to people where they're at. And I think that the State of the Union and going into this presidential election cycle, I think that, uh, that this ability, combined with his ability uh, to be very effective in these large rallies, uh, is something to really contend with. Well, Tim, I want to thank you for appearing on the program, and as usual, you have some very valuable insights into what's going on. I want to thank you for appearing on the program, and I look forward to doing this again with you in the not-distant future. Well, it's a great honor, delight, and pleasure. Be of good cheer, and thank you so much. World Lutheran News Digest may be heard every Wednesday at 2.30 p.m. and again at 9.30 a.m. Saturday Central Time on Worldwide KFUO. It may also be heard anytime streaming online at kfuo.org. Join us again next Wednesday for another new edition of World Lutheran News Digest. I'm your host, Kip Allen. World Lutheran News Digest is a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO. You can also listen to WLN Digest on demand at kfuo.org. To correspond with World Lutheran News Digest, email news at kfuo.org.